Hello everyone, welcome to SNIT. Studies in National and International Development is the longest running weekly interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Since 1983, SNIT has proudly hosted prominent Canadian and international scholars who bring fresh perspectives to issues of local, national, and global development. Please share our podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. We're glad to have you with us. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to SNED. Uh, on behalf of co-chairs, myself, Aicha Tomach, and Carolyn Prowse, and our coordinator, Monique Asunsao, I welcome you to the longest-running interdisciplinary seminar series at Queen's University. Uh, we still have a few events lined up for the term, and I will post them in the chat shortly. Uh, speaking of the chat, to avoid online violence and harassment, uh, we limited certain functions of Zoom today, uh, such as unmuting. The chat, however, is open and closely monitored. Uh, SNED is hosted by Queen's University, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabeg Nation and continues to benefit from ongoing colonization in the forms of extractions of resources, knowledges, and practices of indigenous peoples, not only in Kataraki, Kingston, but around the Turtle Island. On behalf of SNED hosts who are settlers on this land, I would like to reiterate that SNED is committed to amplify the voices of scholars, activists, and artists who study, work, and create towards dismantling white supremacy and settler colonialism. On that note, today's event is the first event of the mini-series, Legacies of War, Imperialisms, Racisms, and Transnational Feminist Solidarities. For this series, minis, uh, for this miniseries, we collaborated with Vanessa Thompson, who is an assistant professor and distinguished professor in Black Studies and Social Justice, uh, and Catherine Mazurak, who is a PhD student in Gender Studies and of Ukrainian descent. Uh, thank you so, so very much, Vanessa and Catherine, for this collaboration. We are really thrilled to have this miniseries uh, at its synod. With that, I will leave the floor to you. Uh, to present our and introduce our amazing speakers today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aicha, Caroline, and Monique for, for having us and for uh, being a home also to, to this mini series and obviously to our wonderful speakers. Welcome, thank you so much for making this the time in these pretty difficult um, and unsettling times. And of course, for everyone who, who's, who showed up. Um, on February 21st of this year, the Russian invasion of Ukraine began. While for some, this was the first time aggression of this sort was heard of, for many others, it was the next step in Russian aggression since the annexation of, of the Crimea in 2014. As the news media rapidly covered certain events and stories related to this conflict, and war, Catherine and I started to have conversations about exactly what we were seeing reported in a variety of news media from across the globe, and what our family and activist networks were telling us about what we were not seeing represented in the news media. From these conversations, we remarked that Western media and governments largely imagined Ukraine as a homogenous country, lacking in diversity associated with modern nations. This is simply not true. We talked about the differential treatment of people fleeing the war alongside racial configurations, black, brown, and Roma people being violently excluded from the possibilities to seek refuge. 
how gender impacted these relations and how they are certainly not new to Europe and its many manifestations of border imperialism. At the same time, as previously, people were pushed back and left to die at the border between Poland and Belarus, for instance. Simultaneously, we talked about the racialization of folks from parts of Eastern Europe, especially from Ukraine, and how they are not simply white, as the century-long racialized super-exploitation, if you just think of the racialized super-exploitation in the agricultural sector, or the meat industry, or the surrogacy industry, and legacy of anti-Slavic racism show. So we debated how, we also debated the various positions on the left the lack of engagement with multiple forms of imperialism and how solidarity could look like in this multipolar and simultaneously neo-colonial world. And we were shocked, but not at all surprised about how little other wars like in Tigray or Yemen matter. So this was actually the starting point where Catherine and I talked about how we might bring together a panel of scholars and activists to talk about the complexities being missed in and through the representations and politics advanced about Ukraine and then in more generally about other wars on a global scale. So we decided that this would be a crucial topic for a speaker series and thanks to the folks at SNIT and the support of the Gender Studies Department, the miniseries found a home. So the miniseries Legacies of War, Imperialisms, Racism and Transnational Feminist Solidarities aims to interrogate from a transnational perspective articulations and meanings of war in their many forms. We ask how we can challenge hierarchies in the perceptions and politics of war, imperialisms and racism. In an increasingly multipolar and neo-imperialist world, the Russian invasion of and war against Ukraine has again put the necessity of global solidarity against context-specific forms of imperialisms, as well as authoritarianisms, on the table. At the same time, political discourses, along with economies of recognition and solidarity, reveal how complex racialized hierarchies operate with regard to whose lives are considered valuable and precious, which wars forms of imperialisms and authoritarianisms, authoritarianisms gets attention, and who has the right to resist, to move, and to seek refuge. Simultaneously, the series attends to possibilities of multidirectional and anti-imperialist critiques and internationalisms, grounded in transnational feminism, as we want to encourage to move towards building transnational feminist anti-imperialist and anti-racist solidarities that leave no one behind. So today's panel is entitled Wars in Europe, the Invasion of Ukraine, Racism and Resistance, and engages with the interlocking impacts of the Russian war in Ukraine and discusses how these are tied to legacies of racism, border imperialism, and neoliberalism in Europe and beyond. This panel attends to the converging and diverging Black, African, Roma, and Ukrainian perspectives, critiques and impacts of the war, as well as discuss possibilities of solidarities. We are grateful that our three panelists have, a joint, have agreed to join us for this conversation and share their crucial insights and analysis. Isadora Rajelovic, Yulia Yurchenko and Beatrice Muskova, whom I will introduce to you now. So Isadora Rangelovich is the director of the feminist Romania archive Romani Fen and is involved in Rom a Romani network in Berlin, Romania, Cynthia. 
She works on an APP for the Central Memorial of the Sinti and Roma of Europe murdered under nationalist socialism with a focus on the narratives and experiences of survivors and their descendants. Her research interests, teaching, publications, and activism focus on racism against Romanja Sinti, forms of Romani feminism, movements for social justice, especially movements for residents' rights and politics of memory. Yulia Yurchenko is a senior lecturer and, and researcher in political economy at the Political Economy Government's Finance and Accountability Institute and the Economics and International Business Department the, at the University of Greenwich in the UK. Her research focuses on state society capital complexes and transnational class formations on the political economy of post-Soviet countries. She is the author of Ukraine and the Empire of Capital, From Marketization to Armed Arm Conflict, and many other publications, including In Capital and Class. She is vice chair of the Critical Political Economy Research Network Board for the European Sociological Association and an editor for Capital and Class. Yulia has recently published a piece in the new collection, Ukraine, Voices of Resistance and Solidarity, a collection of recent writings by Ukrainians and socialists around the world. She is also an activist for the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign, which seeks to organize solidarity and to provide information in support of Ukrainian socialists and trade unionists campaigning for working class and democratic rights against imperialist intervention and national chauvinism. Beatrice Moskva is a young Tanzanian female activist who was studying aerospace engineering in Ukraine before fleeing as a refugee to Germany. She has been active in BIPOC Ukraine and Friends in Germany, a grassroots, a grassroots mutual aid and community endeavor based in Berlin to fight against discriminatory migration politics and in support of equal rights for all refugees and migrants. Thank and so you very much. And we'll hand it over to Isidora. I think we have to unmute her. Um, oh, can I do that too? Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. So thank you for the invitation for this very important talk. Um, I know uh, Vanessa Thompson from our political work in Berlin and I'm happy to be here with you today. Unfortunately, I'm ill, so I cannot stay longer today and would have to switch off uh, right after my speak speech. So um, as a feminist uh, Berlin-based Romani organization, we are a diverse group. Uh, some of us are Sintice, who are recognized as a German minority who have citizenship rights and are not affected by the border regime and residence restrictions, but still experience racism in all other aspects of life. Others of us um, are migrated Romnia from European countries, such as ex-Yugoslavia, Poland, Romania, etc. We, uh, the migrants and our children, are also affected differently uh, by the respective migration histories, hierarchies of the border regime and German law. 
some of us uh, now have uh, the German citizenship. Others have freedom of movement as EU citizens. Some are refugees and others live in Germany completely without residence papers. Nevertheless, uh, we have shared experience with war. Um, first of all, uh, this refers to the genocide of our people during National Socialism in Germany and in the areas in Europe invaded by the Nazis, Romnia were massively persecuted and murdered. This, is, um, uh, this also concerns the history of the Roma from Ukraine who were shot en masse in the occupied territories from 1941 onwards uh, by the Nazis, Deutsche Wehrmacht, uh, German soldiers, and collaborating uh, Ukrainians uh, and SS troops. They attacked first the traveling Roma uh, by consuming entire wagon columns um, at the edge of the forest and shooting all members of the group. Um, I mentioned this because this is the most vulnerable group because it's our lowest, um, it's a classist thing also. And then from 1942, uh, with the support uh, of the local Ukrainian police, uh, they began to persecute and murder the settled uh, Roma as well. Today, uh, 130, 140 places of such crimes are known. <coughs> Sorry. Many Roma hid in the woods during that time and tried to survive there. Some were protected by the neighbors, others were in partisan resistance. Um, there is a long poem by the Romney, a poet Papusha, which describes in great detail the cold winter in the forest and the struggles to survive. I can make it available to the organizers if you like, and if someone is able to translate it into English because we translated it into German. Nevertheless, in the Ukrainian as well as in the German dominant society, the knowledge and memory of the genocide of Ukrainian Roma is hardly present. It was not until 2004 that Ukraine recognized the Roma genocide with the introduction of the December 2nd as a day of remembrance, which is called the International Day of the Roma Genocide and which speaks of the European dimension of the genocide instead of directly referring specifically to the Ukrainian situation. But at least since then, remembrance work has become more possible also in Ukraine. However, many Roma families have preserved the genocide in collective memory through oral transmission, uh, Roma organization in Ukraine have been fighting for a culture of remembrance since the 90s. Roma continue to feel the structural consequences of racism after 1945 anyway. Romnia are the largest undocumented group in Ukraine, according to a 2018 European Roma Rights Center report. Lack of documents is the main cause of statelessness. Um, 
statelessness for Romania. More, most are legally entitled to Ukrainian citizenship, but cannot enforce this right without documents. They inherit the statelessness to their children, perpetuating a cycle of transgenerational structural discrimination for decades. Statelessness also has consequences for flight and arrival in Germany in the actual war. In the following, I will, among other things, also present a part of our statement on the situation of Ukrainian Roma, which we prepared together with the Roma Federal Organization. Later, I can also post it here in the chat, if you like, uh, to have this statement. Uh, the whole statement. In the current war, not all Roma leave Ukraine and not all are victims of discriminatory treatment. But reports of discrimination against Romania at the borders and in the migration countries are clear. At the borders, they are not taken in cars, bus companies turn them away. In the places of arrival, they are separated from the white Ukrainians for unknown reasons. It's written in this statement, but we know the reasons. There are also difficulties in the places of arrival in Germany. Most of the refugees are women and children with young people and sometimes relatives in need of care. They had to separate from their husbands of military age and do not want to split up further. In addition to the war traumas they suffered, they report massive discrimination and insults along the escape routes to the West. Family members and friends who support each other do not want to separate in this situation and would like to stay together, also to be accommodated together. Most privately organized shelters refuse to accept Roma families. So there is a need for large accommodation facilities where people can be housed together. The structural discrimination that existed uh, also before the war, I mentioned the fact that many Roma uh, in Ukraine are undocumented and have no passports. Of the estimated 400,000 Roma living in Ukraine, about 20% or tens of thousands of people have no papers. Others have lost their documents in the course of fleeing. For all these people, it is significantly more difficult to cross the borders and reach safety from the war. The particularly vulnerable group has so far not been included at all in the groups of people who can officially receive protection in the countries of European Union in the current situation. They may or must fight even without papers, but fleeing is a problem. There are reports that the Ukrainian border guards do not allow paperless Roma to cross the EU borders. Therefore, they have to cross the border into Moldavian Republic. There, the white Ukrainian refugees are housed separately from the Roma refugees. European Roma Rights Center called this practice segregation and also criticized the very desolate accommodations on the ground. No members of the majority society from Ukraine were found in these specially segregated centers. The European Roma Rights Center obtained an overview on the ground and found that the authorities in Moldova are transporting hundreds of refugee Romnia from Ukraine to the Romanian border. 
The Romnia are not informed about how the immigration process works and are often turned back at the border because they do not have the right documents or no documents at all. According to Al Jazeera news channel, the authorities in Moldova are being pressured to draw up a redistribution plan for fleeing Roma that does not require them to produce any documents. Moldovan MP Dorian Istrati um, coordinates work at the Manei Refugee Center. He says the Moldovan government is working to convince the Romanian government to take in clean, undocumented trauma from Ukraine so they can be granted asylum there. Um, under EU law, however, this would mean that they would not um, uh, then have to stay there. This would be a clear discrimination of the undocumented since all other Ukrainians can currently choose their place of stay in Europe. We know from the wars in Yugoslavia that many of the Roma who fled um, at that time are still only tolerated. In Germany, it's called Duldung. Um, or also in other countries, even 30 late, uh, years later after the war, and are still being deported. A repetition of this history must be avoided. However, the current treatment of the paperless Romnia from Ukraine gives reason to fear this. We know from experience that in 1999, there was ethnic cleansing against Roma in Kosovo after NATO operations. Due to the war and expulsion, people lost their property. After the war ended, they could not return to their old lives. There are already large numbers of Roma in the diaspora in Europe who can never go back. The arming of the Ukrainian armed forces, but also of paramilitary fighters and of course neo-Nazis will not be reversed so quickly in the coming years, even if the war is over. It is to be feared that members of minorities such as Roma will become defenseless in an extremely armed society. The riots against Roma in 2018 and before in 2016, for example, um, raise fears of the worst. The situation is also potentially dangerous for other people belonging to minorities. We fear for these people. For us, this means that we are already advocating for those affected by racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, and homophobia to be granted permanent secure rights to stay. This would be all, so we also have um, a statement what we need, but I could just send it uh, to you in the chat. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this, also this genealogy of war from Romnia and Synthesis, but particularly Roma in, in European, in various European contexts and to show how entangled actually these formations of war are and obviously also how the kind of fear that also Roma communities now have is actually bound to these kinds of historical experiences. Um, Julia, if, if you would maybe could pick up the thread there um, as the next presenter, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you so much, Isadora, for this uh, excellent, if uh, tragic, 
um, introduction, uh, because indeed uh, the history of Roma uh, in Ukraine, outside Ukraine, um, and uh, of Roma people who had to flee Ukraine is extremely important and historicization of it is extremely important. Um, we have seen some really ugly scenes on the border of when the war broke out uh, and I'm sure Beatrice will also speak to that as well. And I don't want to take, uh, take that uh, away from her. She, she will have better um, analysis of it. Um, but I think this, um, the, both the introduction, the introductory remarks and uh, just, the, um, just the presentation that we've heard about Roma people show us how there are so many important factual stories. There are so many untold stories, histories and histories that uh, without which we will not, without knowing which we cannot understand this war, we cannot understand uh, what we see in these videos that were being shown to us on the news. And indeed very often the reporting that we get alongside those videos is not very well informed. And this is why it's also, I think it's so important to hold these events and to allow, to, to um, elevate the voices of and from concrete communities, informed voices, so that uh, we understand the scope of the problems that we're facing, but also we then from that can uh, build the understanding, the solidarity and can develop mechanisms to, uh, uh, to fight these problems and make sure that this discrimination is done with once and for all. And indeed uh, this, the, the narratives, the news coverage, the scholarly conversations, the political conversations around uh, this Russo-Ukrainian oh. war um, have shown us uh, again, like how uninformed, uninformed analysis, how dangerous they can be and how damaging they can be uh, to, to what is unfolding before our eyes. Uh, the kind of the uh, invisibility uh, of ethnic minorities of, uh, of Ukraine, uh, the, uh, the kind of overshadowing, overshadowing uh, uh, by the Russo-Ukrainian war of other wars that are ongoing right now in the world and the suffering of other people. And that also there was a backlash internationally uh, in different communities uh, because of this uh, sometimes factual, real lack of solidarity, sometimes perceived lack of solidarity. And indeed the response of so-called international community has been uneven and discriminatory as well. Uh, and when you have these kind of complex terrains, then, uh, it's, then, then again, it becomes even more difficult to build solidarities and build uh, connections between uh, groups that are suffering in different ways, but as a result of the same system. So this is one of the things that I think is so important for us, just actually to talk to each other, to hear each other's stories, to, to hear what kind of what needs different groups have, and then try to build uh, systems that help us overcome these uh, multiple oppressions. Because when we think about the ways to build solidarity, we need to think of uh, what we mean by solidarity for a start and what kind of it we want to build and expand. And that does not mean the same to everyone, sadly. Uh, to some, it means just, you know, changing the, their avatars on social media and changing email signatures. And I've seen quite a lot uh, of that. But that, of course, doesn't do an awful lot. And indeed, there are cases of uh, that I'm sure everybody has encountered of those who do 
a lot of uh, virtue signaling, but in fact are unwilling to do any practical solidarity building. And that is really upsetting uh, and unhelpful in, uh, in a lot of way. Um, to, some, uh, to some solidarity means organizing and collecting donations, material and monetary, and then sending them to Ukrainian refugees. Uh, and, and by that, I mean anybody who had to flee Ukraine, irregardless of their passport, irregardless uh, of their ethnicity, irregardless of their religion. Uh, and of course, there were problems and discriminations as to how people were fleeing, and we've already heard some of these stories. To some, it means helping the wounded and uh, raising money for bulletproof vests and, and drones and so on and so forth. So solidarity can mean a lot of different things. Uh, but at, at the same time, to me, solidarity can only be meaningful if it is an international solidarity, if it is talking to, uh, to people who are oppressed everywhere, uh, and uh, those who are oppressed through similar means need to specifically build closer connections, because through that shared form of oppression, uh, much more meaningful and robust international networks of solidarity can be built. There is no unified dogmas and or doctrines on how uh, of what constitutes the kind of uh, feminist solidarity, if you like. Um, there are different iterations, uh, but there, there, there are some fundamental principles that we all share, and that is centering care and safeguarding and supporting of women and anybody who is the most vulnerable, fighting patriarchy, patriarchal racialized capitalism uh, with its dangerous uh, gender norms uh, and, and dangerous in sometimes different ways everywhere. Um, and that, and uh, some of those uh, forms of solidarity were difficult to see for me as a Ukrainian feminist uh, and uh, scholar uh, living in Britain. Um, well, I was in, in, in Ukraine when the war started, but then a few months after I've, I've come back to Britain and uh, I've been working with Ukrainian feminists and we've been uh, cooperating with the Russian anti-war feminist groups as well. Um, and uh, other, other groups, of course, internationally. And what, what we have seen, what we've, we found quite uh, upsetting, uh, if you like, is uh, that there were, of course, a lot of different interviews and petitions and uh, open letters that uh, various groups and feminists were publishing. And there was this uh, one very uh, famous letter that was published in March already uh, that included signatories such as Judith Butler and Tisi Bhattacharya and Siti Arutha and Silvia Federici. Uh, who uh, were condemned in the Russian invasion, but they were not supporting Ukrainian right to resist. Ukraine's, Ukraine as a country, it's right to resist. And to Ukrainian feminist groups and to Russian anti-war feminists, that was really surprising, to put it mildly, because we thought that it's a feminist value, the right to self-defense by whatever means are possible to you. So, uh, we have we, we have seen this kind of the exposition of certain idealist uh, versions of resistance and versions of resistance that are necessitated by the material conditions of people on the ground. To anybody in Ukraine, to anybody who was uh, trying to flee Ukraine from bombs, it was very clear that a peace banner cannot stop a cruise missile. A pacifist movement is effective if it is directed at the source of aggression, not at the victim of aggression. And that was, I found quite challenging mentally and emotionally, 
um, uh, when engaging with certain segments uh, of the so-called Western, so-called self-declared left, who were using pacifism to cover their unwillingness to support Ukraine uh, and support arming Ukrainians so they could withstand the genocidal neocolonial invasion of Russia. Uh, and some of those movements, uh, some of those movements I'm talking about are in the United States and in the UK, and of course, and they, they keep making appeals to peace movements uh, during, for example, Iraq invasion that existed uh, in the UK and in the US. Well, that is all good and jolly, but UK and the US were the invaders, so it made sense to appeal to them to stop the invasions. But it doesn't make sense to shout at Ukrainians to stop defending themselves. And like this sort of materially and informed approach to uh, lecturing victims of aggression as to how they should defend themselves, I find is extremely unhelpful because we need to listen to those who are being attacked and ask them what kind of help they need and perhaps leave uh, some of our um, uh, bourgeois morality somewhere on the side. It's very easy to lecture people about how they should defend themselves if nothing is threatening you personally, uh, especially if you do not, uh, do not mind that so much. So, um, so there were, those were some sort of um, uh, elements uh, of um, perceptions of what forms of solidarities can there be that I, I wanted to appeal to? And now kind of want to say a few things about kind of more practical aspects of this. Of course, there were a lot of, uh, there, were, there were millions uh, of people who are internally displaced in Ukraine and of course, uh, internationally due to other conflicts. I will specifically speak to Ukraine, but I will keep making appeals to, uh, to other conflicts as well, because there were a lot of parallels, uh, of course, but there are a lot of important local nuance. So in uh, with the um, outflow, um, with the outflow of uh, refugees uh, from Ukraine, where specifically we're talking about women, young children, uh, and uh, those who are vulnerable and uh, are medically vulnerable and uh, old, and we've already heard about um, uh, that we already heard that men of conscription age, military age, were not allowed to leave the country. Um, so we have this, like, you know, it's very skewed demographically outflow of people. And then, of course, there were a lot of, um, uh, there were people of different ethnic groups uh, and people with different passports who were fleeing. And there was a lot of discrimination on the border. Some of it had to do with uh, individuals discriminating against other individuals. Some of it had to do with visa regimes. And I'll come to that in a minute. Because what we need to also remember is that Ukraine at the moment of, uh, in February 22, it already had a visa free travel with the EU, which meant uh, for, for tourist purposes, for work, it was a different arrangement, but generally there was a, a lot of infrastructure in place um, uh, between Ukraine and EU countries for a set, there was harmonization of certain databases and so on and so forth. So that 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 kind of technical element is is important. There were a lot of discounts made uh, on the on the spot, and there were a lot of problems, especially for people uh, like Roma community, for foreign students with foreign passports, for people for citizens of other countries who were on work visas. There were a lot of things that were not well thought through, 
And we saw that, uh, that kind of panic uh, at the border. And on top of that, of course, we saw the ugly face of the racialized uh, border regime that the EU has, discriminatory visa regime that the EU has, uh, of which we are reminded daily, um, uh, and, uh, daily and weekly when we look at the so-called refugee crisis that is manufactured in a lot of in a lot of senses in the EU. When we read about boats capsizing in the Mediterranean, when I, living in London, pick up newspapers and read about criminalization of, ref of political refuge seeking. Uh, all of that, all of that ugly discriminatory um, uh, dynamic uh, dynamic is there, and we saw uh, we saw a lot of it uh, um, uh, when when the war broke out, and there were there were uh, there were a lot of people at the border. Um, there were, of course, um, uh, Ukrainian refugees in the initial phases, at the very least, were treated uh, better than a lot of other refugees were, that is factually accurate. Um, yet, of course, this is not without problem, and a lot of that is wearing off by now. In the UK, for example, the, a few months ago already, there were reports that up to 50,000 people who were, uh, who were taken in as, um, uh, through these refugee schemes, homes for refugees, were about to become homeless because families that took them in were only given 350 pounds a month as a top up for their thank you for their um, uh, for welcoming these refugees. Refugees themselves were, were given uh, their welfare payments, but after the initial period of six months that were obligatory for the for the families who took in refugees, uh, most the, those families that hosted up to fifty thousand people didn't want to extend the stay for these people, and there is nowhere for them to go. Uh, they have been pushed into private rental sector, and private rental sector is extremely expensive. Most of them do not have access to jobs. Um, many of them are still sort of trying to learn the language. Most of them have care responsibilities. And in the UK system, even if your child is at school, the school finishes at three, and by the end of the working day, there is nobody to look after your child. So there are all sorts of different problems, which again, like show us the kind of the nature of patriarchal, sexist, um, systems, capitalist systems that do not provide social care in adequate forms. And then there is the refugee dimension and not having community support, not having your family support. Um, all of those, uh, uh, the pre-existing problems that, are, that already are in Britain and in some other, in, in other countries in different, in different regards, they, they, they kind of, they get layered on top with the problems that refugees face, which is not having the community support, um, have facing uh, xenophobia, facing all sorts of uh, different, uh, different lacks of, uh, of support and assistance. Um, Right, I've mentioned about the pre-existing thing with discrimination. Yes, um, Ukrainians, uh, non-white Ukrainians have been reporting that they face discrimination uh, along by now sadly conventional uh, lines, what we, what we expect in their target societies, uh, whether they went across the EU. But on top of that, often when they come, what, what we've been receiving reports of 
is that uh, there, are a number, there are a number of cases where uh, when Ukrainians come to either volunteer centers or they come to kind of to get, uh, to get their housing uh, organized or get any support from their host countries, their Ukrainianness is being questioned because of the preconception of what Ukrainians should look like. Uh, that uh, yeah, non-white Ukrainians and of course Roma, Romani people are facing a lot of discrimination in that regard, but there are also other uh, non-white Ukrainians who are facing uh, these forms of discrimination. Um, uh, one of my friends, she's a black Ukrainian who's moved to Sweden a number of years ago and she was going, she's been living there for a number of years now. And she was going to, to a volunteer center to help with Ukrainian refugees. Uh, and it was Ukrainians for Ukrainians sort of center, and she was uh, discriminated by local Swedes. She like she was questioned as being Ukrainian. She was she wasn't believed that she is a Ukrainian person, and she told me a number of times that she's been more racially profiled since she's been in Sweden than she has been throughout her whole life in Ukraine. This is one person's story. I'm not saying that this is absolutely everyone's experience, but this is nevertheless an important um, observation for us to make about certain preconceptions of who Ukrainians are, what they look like, what to expect of them, and those sort of those visions uh, of what is the whole post-Soviet space, who, what is Russia, what is Ukraine. Uh, what uh, a lack of understanding of the racial politics and the, and the forms of racialization uh, and the imperial legacy within what is uh, what can be called this post-Soviet space, lack of understanding of that is reflected a lot in uh, how this whole war gets misunderstood. Uh, why there are Chechens, Ossetians, Ingush, Georgians, Dagestanis, Crimean Tatars fighting Russia in Ukraine. Uh, there are a lot of uh, ethnic, uh, minor ethnic minorities, which are actually a majority in Russia, uh, if you put them together against ethnic Russians, who are volunteering to go and fight Russian uh, forces in Ukraine because they see that as also part for emancipation of their regions in Russia, from uh, the from the oppressive regime that is Putin's regime, because the colonial legacies of Russian Empire are still reflected in how Russia conducts itself within Russian Federation. Because we need to understand the difference as well between Russia and Russian Federation. We see a lot of commentators, a lot of scholars using Russia, USSR, Russian Empire, Russian Federation interchangeably, and there are too many people guilty in this to even begin to list. This has been an omnipresent problem, but language matters. When we start making these equations, we start perceiving things as, as if they are the same and they're not. Russian, Russian, Russia as part of Russian Federation is a very small, a small territory compared to the rest. It's not the most populous either. This, the mass of Russian Federation are different republics uh, who are populated mainly by what Russians call ethnic minorities, which in it actually are majorities, uh, who have been subjugated to Russian colonial rule over a couple of centuries. And when USSR uh, was formed, some of the some social mobility and some improvements and development of infrastructure and services have happened in those parts of what is now Russian Federation, but the 
uh, but the discrimination and segregation and unevenness regionally has continued. When Russian Federation became a separate country as a federation, uh, for example, uh, Chechens wanted to be an independent republic and we all know what happened there. Uh, they are now one of the most destroyed and, and, and have to be subsidized regions of the Russian Federation because they have been exploited for being, uh, and it, it's the, the derogatory being called as a literal lapdog of Putin. Uh, it's kind of militarized group. And of course, we're talking specifically about Kadyrov, Kadyrov's forces. We're not talking about all Chechens. And in, in fact, there are quite a few Chechens in Ukraine fighting Russia because they also want liberation of their country. They see it as a continuation of their own fight. The uh, Association of Indigenous Peoples of Russian Federation have signed a declaration that they want to be freed from Russian. Uh, they, they want to have, uh, they want Russian Federation to cease to exist. This was a few months ago. This didn't, get, didn't hit any news channels, right? Those regions are being, the regions of Russian Federation are being exploited by Russian ethnic, uh, by ethnic Russians in Russia, uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg and a couple of other kind of industrial cities. Uh, are living a life of leisure while exploiting uh, uh, other ethnic groups, throwing them now as uh, cannon fodder into the minster of war in Ukraine and reproducing horrible offensive racialized uh, practices of compensating families whose uh, sons are being forcefully mobilized with ram or sheep or bags of frozen fish or uh, bags of meat or vegetables, you can't make it up. Um, it, is, it is extremely offensive. So it, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, families would get one of uh, monetary payments. In impoverished regions, people get compensations in, in forms of, bag of bags, bags of food. Um, uh, it, is, uh, it is absolutely outrageous. So there are these, uh, you know, and, it, and these outrageous stories start making sense once you set them in a historical con context of how different groups have been subjugated under the Russian imperial rule and then how that Russian imperial narrative and vision and um, discrimination have been reinvigorated under the Putin's regime. Putin and his regime are the biggest enemy of the, of the workers of the Russian Federation and especially of non-ethnic Russian groups inside Russia. And it is indeed, uh, the, uh, uh, if that regime falls, that would be, uh, that would be uh, the, best, the best outcomes for those groups. Um, I'm going to try to round up with this with just like, you know, a couple of sentences. So there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of things to discuss here. There are a lot of problems that we see on the ground. One, one thing that I will say that we need to all be trying to do as much as possible, learn from local stories and histories, listen to individual people and groups, activist groups, like, uh, like some, some of which are, are, present, are present here, amplify those stories, listen to what their needs are, lobby local governments where you are, lobby international organizations, try to imagine and then try to try to build a better world. Now G20 summit has just concluded. There was all sorts of stuff discussed. One thing that wasn't discussed nearly enough and it should be discussed all the time is 
a different model of deeply sustainable world. And that means basing our economies around care, basing it around socialized care, childcare, education, dismantling patriarchal, ecocidal capitalism, because it's usually is non-white people uh, and women and the most vulnerable groups who suffer most. Uh, we've seen what's going on in Pakistan uh, right now, for example, and of course a number of uh, African countries with droughts um, and uh, military conf conflict uh, and, uh, uh, and hunger and starvation and blackmail around the grain deal by Putin. You name it, it's going on. But until we dismantle this patriarchal, ecocidal, capitalist system and try to build society around different foundations, all of these green growths uh, and welcoming refugees with a couple of flags will only go so far. Sooner or later, we will end up with like, like in the UK with those refugees being kicked out into the street, uh, with, the, with boats of people drowning in the Mediterranean, despite the right to seek refuge being sacrosanct in international law. Uh, all of those laws are nothing if there are not institutions and money being put in place to underpin them. And it is for us to build solidarities and take and keep accountable those who are supposed to look after those laws being implemented. I'm going to stop here. Thank you very much. Thank you so, so much, Julian, um, for this powerful also talk and intervention that I think really encourages also to think hard, but also engage hard with people on the local grounds in terms of also leaving away some of the romanticism, right? That the only imperialism is US imperialism or the only imperial empire formation is, uh, is the US empire formation, which we see long know, know from the Kurdish struggles, from various other uh, liberation movement. And we also currently see with regards to Iranian feminists, uh, many Kurdish also fighting that it's not just this kind of binary thing right going on, but really a kind of a complex, like you said, historicized imperial formations, always patriarchal, always how they unfold also racist and what it means to really counter that in a multidirectional way. And thank you also for um, talking about the differentiality of um, of the kind of refugee help which is stratified, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that even non-black or non-brown Ukrainians have a good life, right, in, in these kind of countries. Because as you said, these kind of things are already drawn back or people are already like put under major pressure. And that has obviously to do with citizenship rule, which is itself a very discriminatory logic. Um, and we have Beatrice, um, who's going to share um, her insights and experiences and analysis with us. Okay, thank you so much, Vanessa and Yulia for inviting us as BIPOC from Ukraine to attend this session. Um, my name is Beatrice Rafael Sokwa, I am in Tanzania, and I was a student in Ukraine. I was schooling at National Aerospace University. I, um, I went in Ukraine in the 31st of October, 2021. And yeah. Yeah, and during the whole, I was cooling. I was cooling, yeah. Um, 
and okay okay um in the 27th of february during the war um we left i and my friends left ukraine yeah to heading to the polish border and actually walked from from lviv i'm from i i, I was staying in kharkiv in ukraine and so we bought a train to to lviv which it was not easy like we had to fight to enter and the train was full so once we reached lviv we walked from lviv to poland and at the border of poland we faced racism and discrimination whereby we as black as black people like me and my friends who are black we stayed at the border like for three days for us to wait to enter the border and once we entered the border like we were given some time in poland to stay and after that we were told if we are not students or we don't have anything to do in poland we should leave since we don't have the ukrainian passports and so we left um some some of my friends went to netherlands me i came here to germany and yeah i registered here in germany and i came to german so that i can continue with my studies and unfortunately the universities like they by that time a lot of universities were offering offers for students who are ukraine, from ukraine that they can continue with their studies but um we like people of color and black people once we applied we were told that the offers are not for us but are for only people who are ukrainians and so like what i came to do here in german like was 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 abolished was like disappeared because i came here in german that i came to apply for my school i can continue to school yeah and so like i did my registration though it was not easy like people who are ukrainians were given much priorities than us black people yeah um so that's how i ended up here in germany and i i got my appointment in the immigration office and the immigration office told me like since my country is safe i can go back to my country and that discouraged me and so i ended up doing like activism like talking airing out our our our, our problem that we are two are from ukraine and we face the same our our life in ukraine has been destroyed yeah that's how i ended up here in germany and i i my, like the agency that i used in airing out the the our problems like our queries to the to to the government of germany like i used the bipoc from ukraine which supported us in doing the protest and yeah writing petition to the senate doing press conferences and at least like we are not fully granted the 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 protection but at least we have we like the laws are changed though it's it's still hard for us like we have to prove like why can we why can't we go back 
to our countries. Our countries are safe and why can't we go back? But also, yeah, it's still hard for us. So that's, that's how I ended up here in Germany. Yeah. Yeah, also I like I have I, I did some protests and I also have a video like I wanted to share one of the the video that I did. Yeah, I I I spoke. Five hundred years ago they came to our country without visa, without any status. And brought things such as Christianity in our countries. Do you know what? I guess people don't recognize women who bore their children during the war. They are children who have six months and they are international and their children are not recognized. They don't have documents for their children. We have been through a lot. We have highlighted our struggles. And this is why demand the change of German currency discriminatory policies. We repeat, we demand the right of paragraph 24 for all refugees and migrants. We repeat again, we demand this right for all migrants. We are from Ukraine, we play the same war with the Ukrainians. So why, why sectioning us? Why calling my Ukrainians and Ukrainians? Why we are all from Ukraine? That was there. Maybe if you are not it's because they're not from Ukraine. That's why you session us. Do you know that bomb? I don't have to say much, but I wish you were there. We condemn the social invisibility for people made vulnerable by an equal treatment. We believe that migration is a human right and that education must be accessible for all. Education must be accessible for all. We are the next generation. Thank you so much, Beatrice, for sharing this and also for, of course, sharing this horrific experience and, but also your fierce activism and, and your resistance. And I know there are many comrades in the room also behind you um, from BIPOC, um, Ukraine and France in Germany. The work you're doing is amazing. I find it so like really fierce and inspiring how you bundled your bundled forces and really make these strong demands and like you said right that that migration is a human right and that you all fled the same war and therefore have um the right and um to have safe lives um and there should be no differentiation in terms of people fleeing the war from ukraine but also fleeing other contexts right um in terms of um that no one is illegal and that there's a, a right to to a safe life and like Julia also said, structures of, of safety and care. Thank you so, so much. Um, as time has gone a bit, I think maybe Catherine, we just asked one of our questions. We actually prepared two, but I can imagine that people also from the audience would like to raise questions. Um, as you already talked a lot about um, solidarities, um, Julia, but maybe to, to pick this up more also with regards to, because you talked about the different layers of solidarities. Um, how do you think is 
like a kind of multi-directional solidarity possible that really considers all these historical or a lot of these historical formations because i think i really get your frustration also in terms of there were certain even in the so-called left right that either remained in a cold war rhetoric um but it was just very binaristic in a way and it also didn't um, and is still and also doesn't consider the history of 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 imperialism um of russian imperialism and empire formations um and right the, the whole kind of narrative of fascism and what have you um that is being fought there and and whatever so i'm wondering how do you um because you already said like talk to people engage to people but how because i completely also agree with the question of the international internationalization of these kind of solidarity structures um where do you see possibility there or how do you think this can be brought further into being like what is maybe needed shall i answer now or do you yeah um Thank you. It's a very good and a very important question. So um, there are a couple of things here. So of course, like you know, depending on whether we're talking about uh, scholarly perceptions of uh, of certain problems, or whether we're talking about grassroots solidarity building, of course, uh, we're talking about slightly different paths. So um, I think for for scholars, like you know, one of the frustrations that I have with the left because they call themselves historical materialists, but they won't engage with the material. So I encourage them to actually engage with the material because they've read a bit of Lenin and they've read a bit of Trotsky, and they think that that allows them to to comment on what is happening between Ukraine and Russia right now. Uh, but actually, Lenin also had different views on what should be happening with Ukraine now than what Putin does. So I think. I think there are too many people who won't let go of um, of the hopes that they placed on USSR as the counterweight to, to the American imperialist, as in US American imperialism. But it's been over 30 years. It's not coming back. Get on with it. You know, and you, people need to see uh, Russian Federation for what it is. It is a neo-imperial, neo-colonial, white supremacist regime. It doesn't speak about an average Russian. But I'm talking about the regime. This is what Russia is on the international stage. This is a country that has blockaded Ukrainian ports and has blockaded and has jeopardized international food uh, and uh, food and uh, fertilizer supplies, leading to starvation and hunger and riots uh, across a number of countries. This is a terrorist state that bombs infrastructure in Ukraine to freeze its cities, to freeze its people. Uh, and to uh, put them in unsanitary conditions, bombing waterworks and sanitation works. And they've done that in Syria, and they've done that in Abkhazia, and they've done that in Chechnya, and, uh, and they, they've done it in Transnistria, and they will do it again. <coughs> so we need to understand that, like, you know, if we are, there are different levels in which solidarity can be built. On the level of grassroots, if uh, if uh, any organization feels like they want to do a solidarity action, find organizations, and you know, Ukraine is an example here, but it applies to any country. Find who locally works with certain issues. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Ask them what their needs are and what needs amplify. Do not assume that you know what people's needs are. 
That applies to any campaigning. We cannot be assuming, <coughs> excuse me. Um, in terms of, so that's, that's kind of when campaigning around concrete issues and concrete problems. Uh, and with social media, of course, and with internet, it's easier to do that. Those solidarities are easier to build. And then, you know, from there on in, there are different local, like, you know, in terms of fundraising, that is kind of easier, more horizontally to organize, but there can be uh, campaigning your members of parliament, organizing protests, organize, if it is dealing with refugees, then like it's, it's action around hosting them and the conditions in which they're hosted. It's, for example, uh, in uh, in the in EU, but, but it's mainly the EU countries, of course, because of the geography. But of course, there is also US and Canada campaign for all all people who have to flee Ukraine to be treated equally without discrimination, regardless of what kind of papers they have. That kind of stuff can happen. But there are, of course, you know, beyond this specific war or any war of a similar kind, there are certain things that uh, need to be done. Uh, and can be done where we do not necessarily have to talk to each other on daily basis and on regular basis. We know what kind of structures need to fall in order for everybody to be treated more fairly. We need to be fighting patriarchy. We need to be fighting capitalism. We need to be fighting ecocide. If enough groups internationally in every, in every place are doing enough work in that regard, we are already working towards uh, towards a better future for everyone. That is something that I think we need to, we need to understand that it's important to know who is doing similar work to you, especially if you are working towards a common goal. And it's and if you're working if you're trying to help somebody with their local problems, ask what kind of help they need. But we also need to understand and and recognize that not every grassroots group can or should have to engage in direct solidarity with absolutely everybody all the time. We cannot all the time support absolutely everybody. If, if each group does a little bit to help somebody else, that at the end of the day will be enough. We need to be also kind to ourselves and recognize that various groups have limited resources. Uh, and while extending solidarity, we shouldn't put this kind of expectations that every group should be working with absolutely everybody at all times. There isn't enough time in the day, even if you have unlimited resources, which we don't. A lot of the work that is being done, especially around grassroots organizations, done by people in vulnerable positions, done by people who have bills to pay, who have jobs to do, who have care responsibilities. So we also need to be kinder in expecting this kind of revolutionary fervor and sacrifice from those who are already stretched. Um, but I think yeah, like if, if every movement just takes like, you know, I, I was actually just uh, coincidentally teaching um, a lecture on um, codes of ethics <laughs> for companies for my sins. Uh, and we were talking about absolutism versus relativism and like, you know, what kind of basic principles are important to have. And I think there is something that's kind of useful there. That is there are for something to be universally useful, there needs to be some sort of basic bottom line on which we agree, which is fighting ecocide, fighting patriarchy, fighting racial discrimination, all sorts of discrimination, fighting capitalism, because that is oppression and ecocide and built in one. And if we, if, if we're, if we all agree that those are the main principles we want to upheld, then local adaptations and, and, and uh, adjustments to the needs of concrete organizations can and will be done. Um, so I think I think that's 
that's probably that. Thank you, Julia. Beatrice, would you would like to share for us uh, with us how does genuine feminist anti-racist solidarity look like for you and also for the um, for the collective you're organizing with? Can you repeat? What does solidarity look like for you and the group you're working with? Okay. Um, okay. Um, like the fact that we come together as one and we, pro we protest, like we write petitions, um, we do press conference, we, like, yeah, we do community gathering, yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's one of the of the of the major common thing that we as BIPOC from Ukraine do, and that solidifies and make us unite. Yeah, like we we know that we we are doing something, and this something like is going to bear fruit. Like the protest we did, the activism we did, like yeah, like we see something like once we do this protest, like. Once we write petition to, to the Senate that, yeah, like things are going to change. Yeah, like we, we once did it and things at least, the, the, the situation is not good. Like we have to rest, but at least we have something than nothing. Yeah. Thank you so much. And Julia and Beatrice, if you would like, you can also just share kind of links or petitions in the chat that you're currently, or movements also you're working with where you think these are kind of resources that you would like to share with folks on this side um, of the transatlantic um, configuration. And I do know that there are some questions also in at least one I saw in the chat and maybe also other people want to ask questions. Um, Emma asked a question to Julia, as an academic interested in the subject, where do you suggest starting to look for unbiased resources which consider all of the intersections of race, class and gender you talked about? I don't know, Julia, if you want to say something about that or if you just um, want to- Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm happy to. So there is an excellent book on, um, Feminist that just been recently published, actually had an honor to review it by Frida Fari um, uh, on, on that kind of feminism. And uh, yeah, I'll, um, will there be a mailing list that I could possibly write, like send it to afterwards? So I think that book would be an excellent start because it actually, it is the best and very quite accessible text as well on intersectional, meaningfully intersectional feminism that also deals with the problem of class uh, that I have seen everywhere. It's beautiful because I've, uh, I've, you know, I've, I've read a number of different feminist texts in my life and uh, a lot of them do a really good job of doing all sorts of different things, but this one actually kind of draws a lot of that together. And like, you know, the more, the more recent feminist scholarship, I found that is kind of, that's being seen as kind of most advanced, kind of tends to not pay enough attention to my taste to the element of class. So I think that that's really like, so Frida Fari's book is great. Um, 
Uh, Ruth Gilmore's Golden Gulag is excellent. Um, if you're more economics minded, uh, then um, then of course the intersectional feminism um, is great. I don't think it's out yet, actually. I need to check if it's out yet. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to send you a list or send the list to the uh, um, to the mailing list as well because there are like you know I have like my mind is buzzing and there are so many different things. Um, but yeah, like Sylvia Federici's work is great. Uh, Nancy Fraser's work is good. Feminism for the is it 99 percent? I don't remember how many percent they put on the top of the book. Yeah, that book is really good because uh, a lot of the uh, kind of the what what some what some call postmodern feminist deals with issues of gender without dealing with the issues of class and if you do not have class race and gender at the same time and i would throw in religion there it's like it's the religious uh elements there as well you don't quite get what women are going through as a framework uh and also kind of the expectations within those kind of within the heteronormative frameworks that are put on men as well that that kind of that in commercialized forms uh, or the commercialized gendered societies lead people to uh, put people in very oppressive gendered expectations. And that can lead to all sorts of social tensions and problems. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to send, uh, to, send, to send the list. And like, you know, Frida, Frida of Ari's book is a great start, especially as a starting thing, because it sort of brings it together. And then from there, you can kind of branch out to other things. One thing I want to show you, because I forgot to mention this, because I had it in my notes. One thing that we definitely should all be campaigning for internationally, that is the uh, abolition of international debt. Uh, international debt that has been accrued uh, by what is now known as low-income countries, and Ukraine. Ukraine went from having the economy size of France in '91 to being the most indebted country in Europe, um, for geographic Europe that is. Um, so that's quite a record in 30 years, and that it was by design, not unlike what became known as the Third World Debt Crisis, that was manufactured by Nixon and Volcker. Uh, on the back of the so-called decolonization on paper. And that kind of straight jacket of financial burdens that kind of, that locks, uh, that kind of that throws a lot of social progress onto debt servicing that comes together with policy conditionality that binds the hands of even the most well-meaning governments into the straight jacket and that, 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 put, that doesn't allow them to adequately finance public services, that doesn't allow to develop proper social, social reproduction infrastructure in different states, that doesn't allow them to finance education and healthcare and protect environment. That kind of stuff, because debts, especially with AMF, come with conditions on what governments can and cannot do. That needs to go. That needs to go. And that's one thing that actually, I think it's one, one, one very important uh, issue that all groups around the world have to unite around. No, no social, human, environmental development should be sacrificed for the sake of lining the pockets of international bondholders. That is simply historical injustice that continues to be reproduced through international financial institutions, putting people on their knees, exploiting and extorting them for natural resources, social resources, environmental resources, and that needs to stop. Thank you, Julia. I've seen there also some uh, Beatrice have shared also the link from their the group, the BIPOC Ukraine um, 
and friends group in Germany. And there are other um, announcements being made also in the chat. Um, and Emma thanks uh, Julia. Also, thank you from my side to flagging some of the materialist feminists. Um, and I don't know if other people also have questions um, maybe in the audience or want to um, make a comment or remark. Um, I don't really have a, a question. I just want to thank everyone for, for being here with us. You've been extremely generous with your time. Um, and maybe just follow up with Beatrice. Like, I really appreciated you sharing that video of you, like, being on the streets. Um, and maybe you could just talk about, like, how, like, what the kinds of responses are when you're on the streets and that kind of, like, very material labor of actually, like, taking up space and, and, and like, trying to educate people. Maybe if you could talk a little bit more about that. Okay, um, I'm like, once I was doing the activism and like people showed positive attitude, like people came like, yeah, they supported, like they could feel the pain that you are passing, we are going through by that time, yeah. Like the government could not give us protection, like we are in the middle of deportation, like we don't know, like we are still hanging, like where are we like, Yes, yeah. So like, like people came out. Like people showed some. Like, yeah, they showed positive attitude. They they were there with us. Like they felt us. They. Thank you, Beatrice. And I know you were also involved in the ten years uh, Oranienplatz in Berlin where with the older folks that were actually occupying that place, which was a historic um, refugee, a self-organized, mass self-organized resistance actually 10 years ago, where one of the central uh, spots in Berlin was occupied uh, by self-organized refugees um, re who really fought together and stayed there for a long, long time and then occupied a school. And that was the 10 years memorial. I know your group was also involved, right? And Andrea Davis was there and was one of the keynotes and stood in solidarity. It was really powerful. Yeah, so, yeah. I, yeah, as BIPOCs, you were there. Like, we, we went to witness the, the work that our elders did. Like they fought for, for the 20 years and still the Oranian is still there, the Oranian flight movement, yeah. Awesome. Anyone else would like to raise a question or comment or would like to share something? Okay, so much food for thought. Um, yeah, I've, I see there have also been further um, sharings of resources in the chat and um, Aisha was also so kind to talk about the next events. I don't know, Aisha, maybe do you want to say something on the November, next November event? And then maybe Catherine and I could briefly say something on the first December event and then we'll, we'll close the meeting. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you. And I also, uh, you know, thank our participants, our speakers. Thank you very much. This was, uh, this was amazing. Um, our next event with this miniseries will be December 1st, and Vanessa and Catherine will talk more about it. But speaking of local solidarities and, um, you know, uh, 
bringing the fight to home and then building our communities uh, around. Uh, next week uh, on Thursday, November 24th, uh, we will have an event with Just Recovery Kingston on affordable housing uh, titled More Than Just Supply, the fight for affordable housing in Canada. Uh, it will be in the public library in the central branch uh, uh, and we will start at 5.30 p.m. Uh, thank you, Vanessa. And for the summer event, I'm switching to you again. So we're having on the 1st of December, um, the we're going to continue the conversation with a panel on global wars and solidarities. And we're going to put a focus on the war in Tigray. Um, Khadija Abdurrahman has, has actually is going to speak with us. She has written a wonderful piece on the war in Tigray in the Funambulist, which is already published. She will talk with us about uh, the war, questions of solidarity around that war. Then we have invited another group who, who has not, we are still waiting on confirmation because they're very much under pressure at the moment still. It's an Afghan feminist group that is organizing for Afghani women. Um, and then another person, um, oh, I have to briefly, engaging with, I have to check the name, I'm sorry. Um, oh, here we are, um, sorry. Um, that's Aicha Kubuchku engaging with questions of international solidarity, um, particularly having a multidirectional critique of imperialism. Um, and then this is going to be facilitated by Margot Kazavare, a co-founder of the Combahi River Collective and anti-war feminist. So that's going to be our session on the 1st of December. And we're going to send out flyers and posters and everything very soon. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to add something, Catherine. No, I just want to thank everyone for all of their contributions. This was an absolutely amazing conversation to be taking place and one that, especially in particular in Kingston, we've not heard very much about the different perspectives of what actually is happening here. So I thank you very much for taking the time and sharing of your knowledge and expertise, because I think these are issues that are being glossed over and they, they can't be.